0: So, this is the end of the first day of this time together on retreat. And I'd like to talk tonight about a particular model of practice known as the five. I'm sorry, there's the five this and the three that. I'm trying to get to the seven, actually, the seven factors of awakening. Uh, this is what I'd like to speak about this evening. These seven factors of awakening illuminate our true nature. They really reveal to us our true inner nature, our true Buddha nature. And these qualities are inside of us already. They just haven't been nurtured enough as of yet. But this is what we're doing in practice. We're cultivating and nurturing these seven factors that when they're fully in bloom bring us to freedom bring us to a deep and lasting inner freedom when they're fully developed they lighten the heart of all of the heart's burdens so they're really important to reflect upon and to nurture in our practice you could say that we're returning to our true nature which has been lost. It's not that it's not there. It's just been misplaced or lost. So we're returning to what's true, what's there underneath the variety of stories and descriptions and assumptions about how things are. We find Buddha nature buried under the variety of concepts that we carry about about how things are lost in thought about how things are kind of clouds our true nature as we begin to drop more and more into our actual experience which is what happens in an organic way in practice we tend to drop down into our actual experience and out of stories out of thoughts out of descriptions and assumptions as we allow ourselves to be drawn inward and to connect with what is. As we begin to discover our potential, the potential for the mind to actually free itself, as we begin to cultivate the seeds of awakening and encourage their flowering, we also, at the same time, come face to face with resistance, with restlessness, and as well with despair. Actually, as we practice, we become more aware of the heaviness of heart. We become more aware of our burdens. We actually become more aware of our lack of freedom. And we find that there are many ways in which we have been imprisoned and we haven't even known it. And when we begin to practice, we actually begin to see what those ways are. Without perspective, we may think that this is how things are. That ultimate reality is resistance, that ultimate reality is despair or is restlessness or whatever it is that we're discovering. This is a great error. We come to practice out of some sense of disappointment or some sense of uneasiness about ourselves or about how life is. or because of some sense of something being not quite complete, a sense of lack, a a sense of deprivation, a sense of incompleteness. We might express this sense of incompleteness in saying to ourselves that what we want is ease. In other words, we might not always touch this sense of incompleteness or gap within. But we may come to practice with a great yearning for ease, with a great yearning for contentment, which of course is the same as saying that we're coming to practice because there is some degree of discontent, some degree of inner agitation. We are aware that things are not as they appear to be or seem to be. They're not the way we've been taught that they are. And we develop a great thirst to find out for ourselves how things actually are. As we begin to open more and more, as practice coaxes us open more and more, we also open more fully to despair, to restlessness, to agitation, to resistance. We may have the illusion that Practice should be loving and peaceful and easy. When it's not, we may easily doubt ourselves. We may think that we're practicing incorrectly. We may think that something is wrong, something is wrong with us. We may find that there are a lot of feelings of shame and of guilt. We might find ourselves caught in ideas about right and wrong. And if we don't doubt ourselves, we may doubt the practice itself. The fact is, transformation and despair oftentimes go together, oftentimes go together. As we open and as we connect more with our actual experience, we may come upon what may, might be called an essential despair. Now, there's, of course, many very real reasons in this world for despair, many reasons in the world, many reasons in our own life histories for despair. But the kind of despair I'm speaking about right now is more of a sense of essential despair. This despair is beyond reason. It has to do when we open in practice with the fear of going inside and finding that nothing is there, of going inside and finding that the heart is actually hollow, void. We may be afraid that we'll get lost, that we'll actually discover that there's no meaning in life. We might be afraid that we'll be endlessly tossed around by doubt and by confusion and by fear. Meditation invites us into this hollowness. It's actually an invitation into the cave of hollowness in which we can explore whether this fear is valid. As we open more and more, we find ourselves able to make peace with this hollow heart. As strength comes into our lives, we can discover invaluable resources within We find ourselves less bound by circumstances and more able to truly be of service in life. And we begin to understand something that is essential, something that is of vital importance, which is that this despair is a phase and is not a permanent reality. Something that Rilke said, be ahead of all parting as though it already were behind you, like the winter that has just gone by. For among these winters there is one so endlessly winter that only by wintering through it will your heart survive. Be ahead of all parting as though it already were behind you, like the winter that has just gone by. For among these winters there is one so endlessly winter that only by wintering through it will your heart survive this is what we touch either in a very profound way in practice or in moment after moment um, at times in our practice is this sense of the essential winter essential despair and it is so important just to say it again to recognize that this is a phase that in going through the cave of hollowness, we find enormous contentment. We find all the fullness that the heart desires. And this is why we practice. So that we can know this fullness within, so that we can offer this fullness to others. In practice, there is an actual regeneration of heart. This is an actual Physical is a funny way to put it, but it oftentimes feels physical, an actual biological DNA changing, (laughs) to be audacious, regeneration of every cell in the body. And we find the heart's release. So to speak about each one of these seven factors of awakening, There are three arousing factors, factors that have some oomph to them, and there are three calming factors. And then the seventh is mindfulness. The three arousing factors include investigation and energy and joy. The three calming factors include tranquility and concentration and equanimity. And mindfulness, which you may find to be in almost all of the lists that the Buddha has, is there because it balances all of the other six factors. It balances and it encourages the development of the other six factors. So it's something that is essential in our work of regeneration of the heart. So to begin by speaking about mindfulness, Mindfulness is the capacity to know what our experience is without judging. It's the capacity to see, to listen very deeply to our experience. Being awake and sensitive to whatever it is that's occurring in the present moment without any sense of hierarchy, without the sense that one moment is any more important than any other moment. Oftentimes in our life, we're not really mindful because we're thinking about what has happened and we're also really thinking about what can happen or what should happen or what will happen. And we forget about life in the present moment. Mindfulness is being intimate with our experiences. It's being intimate right now with the cushion beneath you. It's being intimate with the air touching the skin. It's being intimate with the sound of my voice, because that's a sound that is occurring right now. In hearing the sounds of the birds, it's being intimate with the sounds of the birds. It's being intimate with your own experience, whatever reactions are occurring right now. If there is interest occurring, if there is boredom occurring, if there is restlessness occurring, if there is dullness occurring if there's excitement occurring, whatever it may be, if we can know that it's occurring, mindfulness is occurring. So it's really not what it is that's happening that is so important in practice. It's how we are with it, and how we are with it meaning can we be mindful? Can we know what's happening from moment to moment? In being mindful, we're refraining from pushing our experience away, from judging our experience and trying to get rid of it and thinking that it's more than what it is. Now, when we try to get rid of something, when we try to push something away, a negative emotion or a difficult thought or a sensation in the body or whatever it might be, we give it a lot of power. We make it into something that it's not. Upon closer examination, we begin to see more clearly what it really is and this is a big part of our practice, is seeing more clearly. But we can't see more clearly unless we're willing to get close to our experience. And we can't get close if we're pushing everything away. So, as I mentioned the other night, acceptance is really a big part of being mindful. Intimacy has to do with accepting and being close with our experience, whether it's wonderful whether it's ordinary and mundane or whether it's terrible, seeing if we can get close so that we can understand it. Not pushing away, not grasping, not clinging on to anything, not holding on to anything with tension, with pressure, with any sense of contraction. When we hold on to anything, we make it more than what it is. We make it better than what it is, we make it different than what it is. And then when it goes away, as it naturally will, we find ourselves disappointed. We find ourselves lacking in a certain depth of faith in life that is absolutely necessary for us as human beings to live in this world. So when we cling, we tend to pump a particular experience up. And then it naturally deflates, and then we find ourselves not understanding why it's changed when, of course, it's a natural law that everything that comes also goes. Everything that gets pumped up also deflates. So clinging is not mindfulness. And as well, identifying with our experience is not mindfulness. Taking our experience to be who we are, defining ourselves through the variety of experiences that occur. Just through the day today, I'm sure everyone has had a million trillion experiences, if you've been even halfway awake. I know that sometimes a day like this feels like one experience, and that one experience is sleepiness. And maybe a secondary experience, maybe restlessness. But um, I'm sure you have, have seen more than this, too. And in any given day, in any given hour, in any given minute, that we're looking more closely, we see an enormous variety of experiences. Our tendency, when we're not mindful, is to view ourselves through our experiences. You know, if we're experiencing a lot of sleepiness, the tendency is to think of ourselves as, as sleepy beings or dull or not being able to work with what is or whatever it might be. To simply see that dullness is happening, is being mindful, to simply be aware that restlessness is happening and it's not who we are, is being mindful. So mindfulness is noticing if pushing away is happening, then we're being mindful. Or it's noticing that clinging, contracting around an experience, trying to make an experience stay or be better than it is. Or also noticing any level of identification with experience being aware of identification. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't be pushing anything away, we shouldn't be clinging, we shouldn't be identifying. But what practice is, mindfulness is, is noticing when pushing away is occurring. Noticing being aware when clinging or holding on to any particular experience is occurring. Noticing when we are identified with our experience, when we think it's who we are whether it's wonderful, whether it's ordinary, or whether it's terrible. We can see that every experience comes and goes and is not who we are. Being aware in the present moment, without bias, without prejudice, in a non-preferential way, seeing if we can hold all experiences equally rather than seeing one as more important than another. When we see one experiences, experience as more important than another, we're really not in touch with life anymore. We're in touch with the life of the mind, the mind that decides that this is more important than this. But we're no longer in contact with life itself, life that changes, life that flows, life that is pulsating, vibrating from moment to moment. And there's too much of an emphasis on content. There's too much of an emphasis on what's filling life rather than life itself. Being mindful is knowing right now what's happening, what's the sensation, what's the thought, what's the reaction. It's knowing rather than thinking. Of course, we can be mindful of our thoughts, but thinking about our experiences is not being mindful. Is it possible to simply know from moment to moment what our experience actually is? The other thing about mindfulness is that we can't plan on being mindful. Now, we, we can, but um, it's not really going to ha- work because it can only happen in the present moment. So we can I- have ideas of, I'll be mindful during this next sitting. Oh, tomorrow will be a really mindful day. Um, I'll have a mindful life you know, it's uh, it's really a waste of brain cells because it doesn't it doesn't work that way it's planning you know and mindfulness can only happen in the present moment so can we be mindful that planning to be mindful is occurring then we're once again being mindful we also and this is the other side of it we can't regret not having been mindful sometimes this is more difficult than the planning to be mindful is looking over the past hour the past sitting the past day and saying, oh, you know, what a, what a waste, because I really wasn't very mindful at all. Well, first of all, who's to say, you know, just, just um, oneself self is saying this and what do we know? And second of all, to regret being mindful means that we're not being with things as they are. We're not being present. Uh, in other words, we're not open to what is possible in the present moment if we're clogging up the system regretting something that is already over. So we can be mindful that we're planning to be mindful. We can be mindful that we're regretting not having been mindful. But from the viewpoint of life, from the viewpoint of what matters, all that matters is the here and now. All that matters is can we be awake and sensitive and receptive to life in the here and now. And in this way, we're living our life. We're not wasting our life. And as well, the practice is developing. The practice is continuing. The revealing of Buddha nature actually has possibility of happening because we're awake for it. We're here for it. We're not lost in regret or in planning. Mindfulness as well is non-superficial. It's thorough. There's a depth to mindfulness because it helps us to see under appearances, under how things are. It's like a stone being thrown into the water instead of a cork. A cork floats on the surface. A stone, when it's thrown into the water, really goes to the bottom of the water. And mindfulness is just like this. It's thorough. It covers our experience. That's why we call it mindfulness. You know, fullness of mind is because of this depth of seeing. And as well, one last thing to say about mindfulness is that it deconditions the mind. Always in practice, we're meeting our past. Always in practice, what is happening in terms of content, in terms of thoughts and emotions and sensations, is that we're always meeting our conditioning from moment to moment mindfulness helps us to meet our conditioning and to let go Mm -hmm. to meet our conditioning and to let go to not reinforce that which has led to misery and agitation to open to that which is fresh that which is new that which is truly nourishing that which is deeply Mm -hmm. nourishing every moment of mindfulness is nourishing The second of, well, actually the first of the arousing factors, the three arousing factors, as I said, include investigation, energy, and joy. Investigation is really one of those, all of these qualities are essential, but investigation um, really bodes well in practice because investigation, allows us to look at our experience in a very fresh and inquiring way. It's being with our experience with a great deal of openness. So there's mindfulness occurring, knowing what our experience is, and then investigation has to do with a very silent analysis of our experience. And what I mean by analysis in this context is not Thinking about our experience, or trying to figure it out, or trying to fix it, which is oftentimes what we think of when we think of the word investigation. But instead, what it is, is an interest. It's an interest in what's happening. It's a curiosity about what's happening with our experience. So we don't just assume that things are a certain way. We don't just come to conclusions without deeply inquiring whether our conclusions are correct. So there's a questioning quality. There's an illuminating quality about investigation. Children have this quality quite strongly, I think, in a natural way. Not all the other qualities that I'm mentioning, about mentioning, but certainly investigation seems to be quite strong in children. I was in a museum some years ago, and I was watching the, the, the museum itself. The pictures were okay, but they weren't, they weren't so great. And I was watching this little girl play in the middle of the, the museum. There was this one step in this huge room. There was just this one step in the middle of the museum. So everybody else is walking around, looking at the pictures and, you know, oohing and eyeing and commenting on them. And this little girl spent the whole entire time playing on this one step. It wasn't a great step. It wasn't a purple step. It wasn't a pizzazzy step. It was really just one step. But she found everything in the world to do with it. She uh, jumped on it. She jumped up, you know, to get back up on it. She started eating it. She um, smelled it. You know, she, she had this very interactive experience with a step. And that's what investigation is. It's not investigating something that we think is worth investigating. It's investigating our ordinary life. It's seeing what joy can be there when there is the investigation of the ordinary, not of something that we think um, needs to change, but of our ordinary life. Investigation means not assuming any particular attitude in life or any particular stance. It means trying not to play any particular role. We all have roles in life, you know, mothers and teachers and students and uh, this and that, and Mother's Day today, children. Um, And it means to not attach to any particular role. It means just using the role, you know, playing with the role without attaching to any particular role, which really hems us in. It's investigating and um, seeing if we can be available to life with a certain kind of steadiness that doesn't change according to events, so that there's a, a lightness in life, a curiosity, and an interest in life that doesn't change according to content. You know, just going back to this example of the stair in the middle of the room, this one step in the middle of the room, you know, not, not changing according to the content being good or bad or wonderful or ordinary, but really just um, being light in the midst of life. Acknowledging that we don't know. There's an enormous spaciousness and openness and, I think, freedom. Simply in acknowledging that we don't know and acknowledging or recognizing that we don't always have to know. Such a burden to think that we have to know everything about everything. And an aspect of investigation is letting go of thinking that we have to know. If we don't think we have to know, we're open to learning. And investigation really guides us in the direction of learning. as we're willing to look more deeply, it really balances our tendency to blindly react to appearances, to blindly react to events. We begin to free ourselves from the way things appear to be, from being overwhelmed or crushed by what appears to be frightening in life, from being blinded by what appears to be romantic or Um, attractive or glamorous, from being deluded by what is seemingly insignificant, what we look at and seems not worth our time or not worth our attention. Investigation helps us to see beyond appearances, to touch what is really true. We do, all of us as human beings, have the capacity to reflect. We have the capacity to observe. We have the capacity to investigate our lives rather than just blindly react to circumstances inwardly or outwardly. One choice we have is to react, is to hate it when we get confused, is to hate it when we find negativity is occurring. But with some degree of investigation, with some degree of acceptance and perseverance, we can see things more truly as they are. We can see everything as temporary conditions arising and passing away and not self, not who we are. In freeing ourselves from our natural tendency to identify with experiences, our true nature reveals itself quite naturally. We see for ourselves an inner luminosity. We see for ourselves an inner clarity that cannot be denied. The next of these aspects is energy. Energy is a sense of wakefulness, of alertness, of clarity. Mindfulness and investigation allow for the release of energy. So when mindfulness is operating, in other words, when we know what our experience is in the present moment, and when there is this interest, this openness brought in, which is how I'll define investigation for the moment is the willingness to learn from our experiences. So when there's seeing, when there's intimacy, being in touch with our experiences, and at the same time there's the openness or willingness to learn from our experiences, to be taught by our experiences instead of simply reacting to the positive and the negative and the mundane, the result or a result is the release of energy. There's an energy within that is enormous, that is is vast, that we're oftentimes not so in touch with because we exhaust ourselves in reacting. So any moment that we can be aware with the willingness to learn from our experiences, there is a, a tapping into this energy. And this is something that we see in our practice over time. Sometimes on a retreat, Um, at some point during a a retreat, one finds that one needs a little bit less sleep than usual, and this is because of this very reason, because we are allowing for a release of energy to occur. We are allowing in our practice for there to be a letting go, a non-clinging, instead of a hoarding, instead of trying to accumulate experiences so that we can become someone, oftentimes a very heavy someone, even if it's a, a meditator. You know, we can be a very heavy meditator if we're trying to accumulate meditative experiences. In our practice, it's so wonderful because the instruction is to let go. We don't have to be anybody. And actually, it's enormous freedom to be nobody. Now, when we're nobody, when we think we don't have to be anybody, we can experience life in an enormously different way. When we think we have to be somebody, we get exhausted. There's a heaviness to it. There's an oppression there. There's a lack of freedom. So, in our practice, what energy is, is a dropping back into, a reconnecting with a natural energy within that we've tended to lose access to. Remembering that effort does bring energy. Sometimes we think if we're really tired and if there isn't a whole lot of energy occurring, that effort is really the wrong way to go. But in actuality, even if we're dull, even if we're tired, even if there doesn't feel like there's a lot of energy available to us, if we can bring effort into our practice and remembering that effort is not the futile attempt to change what's happening. It's really the effort to turn towards our experiences. It's the effort to turn towards the present moment. So in the willingness to turn towards the present moment over and over again, the result is more energy. Maybe not a whole lot, particularly on the first day of a retreat, but some degree of energy is, becomes available to us. I think it's important when we talk about effort on retreat particularly, in, in, in our daily life as well, but certainly in this context, to recognize that we don't have to feel like extending effort for there to be effort. You know, we don't have to always feel like practicing. Because oftentimes, we're not going to feel like practicing. Resistance is really a natural part of practice. One teacher put it that um, we resist each step along the way to enlightenment. So, obviously, resistance is probably going to be around for a long, long time. So, is it possible to come to resistance from a different perspective, as something natural, as something that can be befriended, rather than as something that shouldn't be happening? And on the other hand, not to feel that we need to bow down to resistance, not to feel that resistance has to have this enormous power over us. Is it possible to practice even though we don't feel like it? Really interesting things happen when one practices when one doesn't feel like it. Now, it's it's quite an interesting thing to experiment with. Now, it's maybe not something that you can... Do in a sustained way for a long amount of time, like an hour, but certainly for five minutes or ten minutes or fifteen minutes to really put out an enormous amount of effort is quite an interesting thing to do when one doesn't want to uh, it's 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 um again it's something just to experiment with to see what happens when you do so. It has to be a longer amount of time than one moment you know, it really has to be sustained the intent to turn towards our experience has to be sustained for there to be a seeing of anything new or anything different. But it really breaks through um, being enslaved by our feelings of always having to feel like doing something and thinking that only if we feel like doing it are the results going to be what we want them to be. In practice it's really not like that. We can really not feel like doing something and if we do it anyway sometimes we get in touch with, with this energy or with something that is quite new and different. So I'm, I'm not at all saying that one should knock oneself out or strive or push or force or anything along those lines because that's not wise effort. Gentle effort is always required. But this gentle effort also has to involve a sense of quiet determination because it's so torturous to not be present. It's so exhausting to spend our time being lost in thought when there's an option to not be. You know, oftentimes we don't have that option, and that's fine. It's okay. It's just how things are. But when there is that moment of mindfulness where we can sustain it for a little bit of time, it's really a good thing to do. It's really a good thing to do because it's the slow, the slow torturous route is kind of diving into thought over and over again. Whereas a harder but much more valuable, bringing much greater benefits, has to do with making the effort to turn towards our experience. And just let me say it one more time, because effort is such a tricky thing. Oftentimes even mentioning the word effort translates into ambition and striving and forcing. But the effort required on retreat, uh, the effort required in practice, whether on retreat or not on retreat, it doesn't matter, is a lot more delicate than that. Effort is the willingness to turn towards our experience and to accept whatever our experience is. Not the effort to try to change anything, not trying to attain anything in particular, not trying to become anyone. All of this is incredibly exhausting and tiring. So what effort is in practice is over and over again the willingness to be present, the willingness to be present with whatever our experience is. Part of working with effort has to do with recognizing when it's helpful to stretch, when it's helpful to relax back a bit. And this is very personal. This is not something that there's a formula about. So everyone has to really develop the art of effort on their own. But looking at what our relationship to effort is can be helpful, you know, because we all have stances towards effort. Some of us measure our effort out with a, you know, like kind of like an eyedropper, like I'll I'll put a little bit of effort in and then I'll take a big long rest, and then maybe if I feel good I'll put it two more seconds of effort in and then I'll take a longer rest. And others of us really go in completely the opposite direction. And we're living with this enormous tension from striving all the time. Uh, Not relaxing, not settling back into the moment, um, thinking that the the person who's doing the dropper kind of, of effort is extraordinarily lazy, you know, judging the way other people are practicing and judging ourselves when we fall into this ourselves. So trying to see if there can be a balanced effort, a wise effort, and I would certainly say a compassionate effort. And this is something that can be investigated. It's not something that just happens in practice. It's something that we learn through our um, days, months, years in practice is the delicate art of wise effort. Joy is the last of the arousing factors. And always when I get to this one, I I'm feel quite happy about it because there's, you know, there's kind of like a sense of relief that this is one of the factors and that it is actually necessary. You can't have the other six and wake up if you don't have joy. All seven of them are absolutely necessary for awakening. So joy is a factor of awakening that is necessary to nourish, necessary to cultivate, necessary to allow, in practice. We can so easily make the mistake that spiritual life has to do with some degree of punishing ourselves, when actually we practice for the sake of joy. You know, we, we practice this practice. The Buddha taught this practice for the sake of joy and only joy. We can easily get stuck on the first noble truth, which, as many of you know, is that life is suffering. But that's the first one, and thank goodness it goes on from there. The second, of course, is that there's a way out, that there are reasons for despair, that there are reasons for suffering. The third is the most cheerful, which is that it is possible to completely release ourselves from suffering. So to remember the first without the third is a skewed view of practice. It is absolutely necessary to hold our practice with the recognition that this practice leads to joy. However, seeing dukkha, seeing um, suffering, seeing despair is absolutely necessary because this is what allows us to let go of it. Ajahn Chah, who is a very wonderful, um, he's not around anymore, but a Thai teacher, uh, used to say that, you have to pick something up before you can see how heavy it is and then let it down. So always, in practice, we're picking up suffering. We're noticing uh, despair and suffering that we might not have noticed before. In this recognition, we can say that it's possible to put it down. But we can't put it down unless we recognize its weight, unless we recognize its oppressiveness. When we do let go, when we do put it down, when we do let go of anything at all, there's a sense of lightness, there's a sense of relief, and there is a sense of joy. The joy in practice doesn't only have to do with having a good time. It has to do with opening up to life, opening up to all of life and touching the joy that's underneath our experiences. There's a teacher named Maharaj who said... All happiness comes from awareness. The more we are conscious, the deeper the joy. Acceptance of pain, non-resistance, courage and endurance, these open deep and perennial sources of real happiness, true bliss. This is the kind of joy that comes out of being open to life as it is. When we live in concepts, life is enormously boring. Even if our concepts are, you know, if we got them from great universities, or if we talk to a lot of people about them, or if we've really refined them and made them into concepts that other people want to hear about, it's still at some point no substitute for life. It's always going to be a very boring, superficial kind of life if we're only living in concepts Nothing wrong with concepts, of course, if we use them. I'm talking about concepts. The Buddha's teaching has to do with concepts, so I'm not trying to undermine concepts. But if we are living in our concepts and not in the joy of life itself, um, we're going to be undernourished and life is going to be quite dry. When we step out of our concepts, life becomes continually interesting, whatever it is that's occurring. Whatever it is that's occurring becomes interesting and fascinating in some way when we're not living on one dimension only, which is the dimension of thought or the dimension of concept. So, so much in our practice in order to discover joy, in order to nourish joy, there has to be this willingness to let go of concepts, to let go of ideas, to let go of um, conclusions of how we think things are for the sake of knowing for ourselves how things are in the present moment. And this allows us to touch something that is enormously vibrant. To know just the way things are is to know joy. In any present moment, if we can know how things are, we do touch some joy. So in our practice, it's necessary to nurture contentment, to nurture ease, to nurture a lightness of heart. We don't need to try to fit models. We don't need to try to fit any particular model because joy is something that's spontaneous. Well, it's um, eight o'clock and I have three more to go. I told Michael this was going to happen. I used to be quite shy and I would only be able to talk a little bit about certain subjects. And now, if I have seven, there's no way I can finish it in the amount of time <laughs> that we give to a talk. So, um, I think, okay, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, catch me if I start talking too fast, because <laughs> I want to do that. But um, I'll, I'll continue with the other three. So, the other three are the calming factors of mind, of heart, and these factors include calm, or tranquility, as well as concentration, as well as equanimity. So, equanimity, concentration, and calm. The image sometimes used for calmness is the image of a still body of water that is unagitated so a very quiet silent body of water where things aren't being thrown into it where there aren't ripples you know so so don't imagine the ocean here really to imagine a pond of water that is completely still and it's it's actually helpful to get a sense of this image because it can help to connect with your own inner calm to envision a pool of water, a still pool of water, and to recognize that the mind quite naturally has this very same quality. Now, it's something that we nurture, but it's not something that we're trying to get. It's not something that we don't already have. So just to reflect on a pond of water, sometimes it even helps to look at water um, for this, and just, just to notice the inner reflection, the inner reflection of your own sense of calm. Calm is is oftentimes brought about by having a bigger than usual perspective about life, about one's own life in, in particular, seeing if we can enlarge our view of life. Calm comes about by being a little bit less shaken by the events in life, by loss and by gain, by praise and by blame, noticing that loss and gain that praise and blame happen to everyone. Is it possible to allow our perspective of life to be so much bigger that these things still have their effect? Now, it's not that that blame doesn't hurt or that loss doesn't hurt, but it's holding it in much more of a spacious way so that there can be calmness around, so that there can be calmness within all of our experiences. We all are blamed. We all are praised at some point or another. I remember some years ago being here and teaching with someone else, with Christina, another teacher here. And we were doing our usual thing, chatting in the hall. And um, we got two notes. They were back-to-back, you know, those notes that people put on our clips. We got two notes back-to-back. And the first note said, Dear Narayan and Christina, would you please try to talk more in the hall? Love, da 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 da. And then we got the second note: Dear Christina and Orion, would you please try to talk less in the hall? And it was so funny because it happened to be, you know, notes at the very same time in a seven-day retreat. They just happened to show up together, and just that recognition that you have to do what you do. You know, I mean, you you can't try to please everybody. One has to have a sense of calm and integrity within where we do our best, but we're not trying to change according to other people's expectations of us, which brings about an enormous amount of agitation, of inner agitation, of really being outside of our experiences, being outside of our own bodies, being outside of our own life, trying to absorb into and imagined other. I had another experience around praise and blame some years ago. um, This was actually a good many years ago now. The center that I teach in, CIMC, where I'm I'm pretty much there all the time, other than being here on retreat, there was a um, a write-up of the center in the Boston Globe. And um, it was the Globe magazine, so a lot of people happened to see it. And it was this whole write-up of the center, and there happened to be a picture of me and of Larry, in the magazine and um, I went the next morning after I saw this in the magazine I went the next morning to store 24 which is where I was going every day to get the paper to get the milk and this particular morning I um, I went in and I opened up the the milk thing you know how there, there's those freezers at convenience stores where you you open it up and then the milk is inside but you know there 's this whole storeroom in back, so I opened up the milk, I opened up the the freezer door, and I heard this disembodied voice say, "Oh, I saw you in the globe the other day." <laughs> it was the freezer guy he was um, he was refilling the freezer with milk, and you know, good picture, wonderful to see you, da 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 We'd never had any communication before, but you know this was a really exciting thing for him, and it was really. Funny for me with the freezer part, I enjoyed the encounter quite a bit. And then I walked back, I walked back to CIMC, and I bumped into the person who, um, (laughs) a person who was working at the center at that time, and she said to me, um, oh, you must have been really disappointed with the um, article, you look so tired in that picture, what was was wrong with you that day, were you sick? (laughs) <laughs> and it was, it was great because it was both, again, within 10 or so minutes, having the praise and then the blame. Uh, so, you know, again, we, we, we can just do what we do. Um, to, to be too swayed by either one would be a problem. And oftentimes we find ourselves quite lost in agitation because of being swayed by either praise or by blame, making praise into more than what it is and making blame into more than what it is instead of simply living our life from moment to moment with a sense of inner grace. So we can live less in our likes, in our dislikes, in our regrets. We can live a little bit less in our plans and in our preferences. We can let go a little bit of our attachment to ideas and to judgments. We can let go of the futile urge that we may have to control everything, which really does bring about a great deal of agitation. Just to look at the breath for an example, so much more calm naturally comes about when we're not thinking that the breath should be any particular way, when we're allowing ourselves to receive the breathing and to let the breath go, to receive the next breath and to let it go, rather than thinking that it needs to be any particular way. We can see this with everything in our life. When we're trying to control, the result is agitation and the opposite of calm. So we can relate to each moment with openness. There is an enormous power in calmness. Now, sometimes you don't quite value it enough, I think, in this culture. Um, Excitement is valued and stimulation is valued, but enormous power in being calm. When the heart is at rest, It has a chance to see itself more clearly. If it's rippling, if it's agitated, it can't see anything very well. We can encourage calm in our lives simply by doing one thing at a time, which, of course, is, as I mentioned about the walking this afternoon, all we can do anyway. But somehow we think that we could or we should be doing many, many different things at once. A way to actually encourage and nurture calm is to just tie our shoes, is to just walk, is to just eat, is to just do whatever it is that we're doing, is to just listen deeply to the person that's in front of us, is to just listen deeply to ourselves, is to do just one thing at a time. Allowing our imperfections and others' imperfections to be a little bit Not expecting ourselves to be perfect, not expecting others to be perfect, allows us to rest a little bit more in the power of calm. Concentration is the next calming factor, and this is the ability of mind to stay with whatever we want it to stay with. So concentration is being one-pointed, being steady without wavering. And the image sometimes given is of a candle with no wind, a candle that's lit, so there's a light to it. But the candle isn't the light of the candle, the flame, isn't wavering because there's no wind. With concentration, there is a collecting of the variety of experiences within. There's a harmonizing. There's a unifying. Concentration again, in a natural way, disentangles the mind from its endless complexity. So it's well worth nourishing. It allows for spaciousness. It allows for a very gentle subsiding of our addiction to rehearsing our lives, of our addiction to describing our lives. Concentration helps us to develop a strength of mind and a power of heart. It helps us to be in touch with a fullness of heart so that we're not so dependent on external situations to make us happy. When concentration is strong, there is an inner fullness of heart that is experienced. And it allows us to be able to be with our life by being able to embrace it instead of thinking that life is too much. It brings depth to our seeing. One of the obstacles to concentration is thinking that we should be more concentrated than we are. It's actually an obstacle, um, kind of the fear of of failing, uh, failing at concentration. Uh, Because fear of failing or thinking that we need to succeed at concentration as if it's a thing that we need to get, um, really makes for a great deal of tension and pressure. And for concentration to come, there does have to be some degree of relaxation. Relaxation and then a very gentle sustaining of the attention, in this case on the body and on the breathing. The sustaining of attention on the breath whenever we get a chance, in quite a relaxed way, is what brings about concentration. But if we're trying too hard, if we're wanting to succeed, if we're afraid of failing, we're going to be caught in thought. And when we're caught in thought, it's not possible for there to be concentration. And the last is equanimity. (laughs) Equanimity is an open-mindedness. It's an even-mindedness with whatever our experiences in life are. In equanimity, there's an unshakable balance of heart Tara Tolku, a very wonderful Tibetan teacher who happens to be dead as well, um, talked about equanimity as being everything being equally near. You know, instead of thinking of equanimity as something like detachment, of holding things at arm's length, everything being equally near to us. Equanimity is the result of calm and concentration coming together. So if we're encouraging calm and if we're encouraging concentration, equanimity will be the result. Equanimity also comes about through seeing if we can be less reactive to our experiences. Uh, Instead of blindly reacting, seeing if we can be aware, seeing if we can be mindful, and then equanimity is the natural result. The opposite of equanimity is anxiety or restlessness. What looks like equanimity but is not is a sense of indifference or dullness, um, there being a sense of rejecting um, life or rejecting um, someone else uh, and having it look like it's equanimity. This is so common in spiritual circles for there to be really a lack of love and calling it equanimity, because one doesn't want to engage with someone else. One doesn't want to engage with the difficulties in life. And so it's a whole lot easier to say, oh, I'm just being equanimous, um, when actually one doesn't really care enough, or what is happening more than not caring is a fear of inactive engaging in life. So I think this has to be really very, very carefully looked at as we practice. Sometimes what we call equanimity can be a degree of self-protection, and it can look like equanimity. So honesty is what's really necessary. Saying to ourselves that we just don't want to get upset is not equanimity. Active engagement with our life without reactivity is equanimity. Equanimity has nothing to do with... um, a deprivation inside, or a coolness within. It has to do with the fullness of understanding that things are as they are. It's not based on suppression. And we're not trying to pretend to anything to fit any kind of an ideal of how we should be. Equanimity really creates a security in the heart. It gives us the strength and the courage to be present without withdrawing, without having to withdraw into resentment, into blame into a sense of being powerless, or a sense of self-pity. Equanimity allows us to be able to dwell with our own pain, to be able to hold others' pain a lot more easily. Sometimes, when there is pain occurring, all that is important is that we be there, is that we be available, is that we be accessible. But because sometimes we're so unequanimous or afraid of our own pain, we're not able to be available to others. So we learn inner equanimity, and then quite naturally, we're able to extend it to others. None of these seven factors are qualities that need to be accumulated. All of these seven qualities are potential aspects within us that have not yet been fully realized. All of these aspects need nurturing, they need watering, they need tending to, they need our attending to them. To discover these seven factors, this power within, takes conscious effort for most of us. For most of us, it requires a structure and a form to encourage their growth. Sitting in the way that we are today, and as we will be, allows for us stepping aside of the normal context of, actual, of active engagement in our life into a space of receptivity. And in this space of receptivity, these factors grow in quite a natural way. We can use these seven factors as a way to guide our practice. We can step back and we can take kind of an honest assessment of what our strengths and limitations are. This doesn't mean to try to evaluate or to try to get too trippy about it. It really just means looking at these seven factors and noticing what is pretty strong already, what needs to be developed and cultivated. For all yogis, from beginning students to older students, it is a continuing unfolding. And the direction of this unfolding, unfolding is always towards peace and it's always beyond despair. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings have comfort of heart. May all beings be free from all forms of suffering. Can we just sit for a moment or two?